following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We are in Hebrews. I'm just going to jump right into uh, the passage we're addressing this morning. I'm going to break the passage up into two parts, and we'll revisit some things from last week and get some new material as well. So, I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. So let us move forward to enter this rest, all right? So that's referring back to our last several weeks of sermons. Previously in Hebrews chapter 4, the author was talking about the rest that God offers us. So let's move forward to enter this rest, so that none of us fall into the kind of faithless disobedience that prevented them, that is the Israelites, from entering the rest of Canaan. The word of God, you see, is alive and moving, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing the divide between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and will of the heart. No creature can hide from God because God sees all. Everyone and everything is laid bare, open for his inspection, and he's the one we will have to explain ourselves to. So once again, the last couple of weeks have been about rest. This chapter has been all about rest. Enter into God's rest and a look at how awesome that rest is. And then we get seemingly out of the blue. So the word of God is like a sword. And this sword is just going to lay you bare. It's going to It's going to pierce you. There's nothing it cannot divide in your life. And I I wouldn't get too hung up on the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's just a way of saying there is no part of your life that the word of God won't seep into and really begin to do a work. And this seems, at least when I read it, this seems like an odd jump in thought. Like, God will give you rest. Awesome. The word of God is a sword. Whoa, settle down. What, this, this is such an abrupt kind of transition, at least that's what I felt as I was reading it. But I realized as I began to study it, it's not really an abrupt transition at all. It's a change of tone. It's a little bit of a change of pace, but it's building on a particular kind of message. And that message is, how do we enter in to the rest of God? And here's the bottom line. Rest is tied to obedience, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that rest is also tied to trust, and I believe that's true. But in this particular passage, you see it right here in verse 11. Let us move it forward into rest so that none of us fall into the kind of faithless disobedience that prevents us from entering into the rest that God offers. So rest is connected with obedience. For the Israelites, because of their disobedience, they wandered for 40 years. For Moses, because of his disobedience, he saw the land of promise. He didn't actually get to enter into the land of promise. And we talked the last couple of weeks about different kinds of rest that the Bible talks about. One is the rest we find when we give our lives to Christ, we experience salvation, and now that weight of the guilt and the shame of our sins is taken by Jesus on the cross. We hand that over to him, and now we rest. The second kind of rest is the rest we can experience as a Christian. That as I walk with Christ, the kingdom of God offers me rest from, once again, guilt and shame. But it offers me this ability to find my identity in Christ, to learn how to repent and forgive, to learn how to walk in the paths of righteousness that has its own reward. So that's the second kind of rest, rest in this life. Third kind of rest is the rest of eternity, the ultimate rest in the life to come. And I've mentioned before, I think in this passage, 
the rest the author is talking about is rest in this life. That there's something about living in the kingdom of God and living with righteousness that offers us a spiritual kind of rest. And this kind of rest is tied into obedience. And this is where the sword of the word of God comes into play. It exposes everything about you that keeps you from rest. So here's the power of the Bible. If you let the Bible do its work in you, it'll dig deep, friends. It'll pierce everything about you. It'll get your attitudes. It'll get your priorities. It'll get your heart issues. It'll get your hidden thoughts. It'll deal with your lust and your anger and your pride and your bitterness. I mean, there is nothing in your life that the Bible will not dig into. So this is, this is the work. And the writer of Hebrews says, it will lay you bare. So this sword imagery... This was a sword image that was well known to the people reading the book of Hebrews. This two-edged sword was the favorite weapon of Roman soldiers. It's a brutal sword. Just remarkably efficient in doing its business, which was slicing and piercing. So we don't see swords much today unless you visit Tom Child's house. But if we would see people walking around all the time with swords, this imagery would be daunting because likely pretty much every reader of this book had seen what swords do. They'd seen people laid bare. Okay, this is what the gospel does. This is what the Bible does. It's not a gentle image. Here's rest, this great image followed up by this image of the Bible as a sword. So just in terms of literature, this is a great kind of a clash. Oh, you were feeling so good. And and now you're like, whoa, how do I get to this rest? It's going to hurt. The road to rest is going to be a painful road. So buckle up. This imagery about being laid bare, and now I'm going to shift the image a little bit because the sword gave this real visual for people about how it's going to get everything. The laid bare was a different kind of image, and it's a fascinating one. And it shows up in other literature of the time, the same words. So historians can look at how this was used in different places and see what is the image that the biblical writer is conveying. So this, first of all, just simply means that you're bending your neck back. Now, we don't think of that necessarily as being vulnerable, but in a culture like that, with a lot of sword and knife fighting, you don't expose your neck. One of the direct images that's used is the idea of a guilty person being in front of a magistrate who's sitting up a little higher than them, and in order to acknowledge their guilt, they must look up, and they expose the vulnerability of their throat. There was one historian who talked about how pleasing it was to see the necks of informers as they confessed to being traitors before they went to their death. So that's the first image. That scripture will force you to do this, to be in this vulnerable position where the most tender and hidden parts of your life, the things you want to protect the most are going to be laid bare. The second way this image is used is that of wrestlers who grab opponents by the head and the neck and they can control them. You actually find this, if you find pottery from the time, this is a picture that's often shown. Now, this particular image, I really like how turn, tighten and stretch the neck and snap. Okay. 
That's the idea, though. And they would literally sometimes in these contests, a wrestler would grab another wrestler and just drag them around the arena by this hold on their neck. And it, it wasn't just in the arena. There was a writer from the time who criticized one of the uh, athletes in the games who was a victor who kept looking in the stands at this woman he was infatuated with. And this author says, see how this mighty champion is drawn by the neck by a common girl. In other words, she's just dragging him through life. So this is the image. That the writer of Hebrews, inspired by God, says this is what the Bible will do to you. The Bible will expose your vulnerabilities. You will be helpless, so to speak. It's going to drag you around. You're going to have to surrender in the sense that you can't fight back. The Bible, in its power, is going to lay Bear your life. So this is good news and bad news. The good news is, if we surrender to that, we find rest. If it is true that sin robs us of rest, and if it is true that the Bible reveals our sin, that everything they've described is the path to rest. And it seems weird because we don't want to think of the path to rest as being hard. I'd like the path to rest to be deeply pleasurable. That's my preference. I would like God to just find some way where there is no hardship in my life and boom, I am mature and resting in Christ. It's not the way it works. The Bible is like a two-edged sword. It will pierce you. It will pierce everything about you. And as our lives are laid bare, as it drags us around, so to speak, and we surrender, this is when we find rest. And how does this work? Because the bad news is, that's a pretty daunting image. And frankly, if the reality is, as this passage says, we'll give an account to ourselves to God, if I have to give an account to God on my behalf for what I have done, I'm in deep, deep trouble. And this being dragged around the arena and being exposed is going to lead to my death. It's a vulnerable place to be in. But this leads us to verse 14. Since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who passed through the heavens from death into new life with God... Let us hold tightly to our faith. For Jesus is not some high priest who has no sympathy for our weaknesses and flaws. He's already been tested in every way that we are tested. But he emerged victorious without failing God. So let us step boldly to the throne of grace. Where we can find mercy and grace to help when we need it most. So a couple things about the imagery in this passage. First of all, the Jewish high priest, and you'll see a picture here on the screen... The Jewish high priest would pass through a veil into what was called the Holy of Holies in the temple. And he would take a blood sacrifice to atone for his sins and for the sins of the people. But Jesus, as the great high priest, the only high priest referred to as great, he goes through the heavens with his own blood. For his sacrifice, it isn't simply temporary, but is permanent. And instead of just symbolically going into the holy place, he goes into the holiest of holies. So the first thing we see highlighted in this passage is Jesus as the great high priest. 
The second thing is that Jesus is not cold and aloof. He has sympathy for us. If you look to Strong's Concordance, which is this classic kind of primer to understand biblical language, it literally means he's touched with feelings of compassion. Why is that? Because he knows what it's like to be us. I was trying to think of examples this week of how my attitude toward things changed when I was involved. Number one, I used to be really judgmental of people with kids. Like, how can they not control their kids? I still remember one time, with great embarrassment, sitting at church. I think this was after Sheila and I were married. And we were there for some Sunday evening, and there was a family there whose kids were just a handful. And, like, there was a group of us back there, like, almost laughing at them. Like, oh, come on. Get a handle on your kids. And then, then I had kids, right? Then I had kids, and suddenly, I have no reason to point any fingers at someone who's in Myers, and they can't find their kids because they're hiding in the coat racks, right? Suddenly, everything changes because now I have sympathy because now I know. I feel like everyone should coach. If you have a kid playing sports, you need a volunteer to coach. Why? Because once you are a coach, you'll feel differently about coaches, You'll find a sympathy that did not exist before because coaching is hard. And when you step into those shoes, now you understand. When I was a kid, my dad had a book called Black Like Me. Has anyone ever heard of this book? A guy named John Howard Griffin. And I remember reading this book as a kid. Here's a a brief summary of what this book was about. Black Like Me, first published in 1961, is a nonfiction book by white journalist John Howard Griffin recounting his journey in the deep south of the United States at a time when African Americans lived under racial segregation. Griffin, his skin, uh, his skin was temporarily darkened to pass as a black man. He traveled for six weeks throughout the racially segregated states of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, and Georgia to explore life from the other side of the color line. Man, that book left a huge impact on me as as a young man. And this analogy isn't perfect, but the analogy has power, at least to me, because Griffin, because he didn't understand, he did what he could to try to put himself in their position so he could understand. And if, if you would have lived in the South in the 50s and 60s, and my parents and my grandparents have stories of this because they did live in the South during that time. You, you gain more of an impression of what it is like. So like I said, it's not a perfect analogy because Jesus didn't simply present as one of us. He became one of us. So one of the fantastic things about the message of the gospel is that God in Jesus becomes fully human while not giving up his divinity. It's this impossible, miraculous, and glorious thing that Jesus did. And now we know that we have a great high priest who sympathizes for us because he was one of us. He knows what it's like to face trials and temptations. He knows the hardship of life. He's experienced it from the perspective of humanity. But, and the next point, he emerges victorious and pure from this life, the only person in the history of the world to do it, and the reason he can be our sacrifice. He withstands every trial and every temptation. And and now, because his life is perfect, this perfect human, Jesus, 
who is also perfectly divine, accepts onto himself the weight and the burden of our sins. The only one who can be the sufficient sacrifice for us. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, now we step boldly to the throne of grace. So the Bible uses other languages for throne, for thrones. Throne of judgment is another one that comes up. And I was looking for an image for throne of grace. But I didn't want something too comfortable because there's other thrones mentioned in scripture. And I ended up liking this image quite a bit because that image intimidates me a bit. If I were walking up to this throne, I think there'd be a whole lot of emotions going through me. Because on the one hand, we do have a God who sits on a throne of judgment. And the reality is justice must be served. And if we only approach a God whose throne is a God of judgment, and we approach a God who was only justice, and it's only us, that is a bad combination for us. And we approach the throne with cowardice and fear because the wrath of God is about to smite us. But the writer of Hebrews says, now we boldly approach the throne of grace because Jesus satisfied the demands of justice. And now as we as followers of Christ approach this throne, we don't have to do it with cowardice, we do it with boldness. I mean, we do it with trembling and awe but not because God is going to smite us, because of the greatness of a God who gave of himself so that we could approach this throne of grace with boldness. I don't know about you, but I've often found in my life that, especially if I know there's sin in my life that needs to be addressed, I have a tendency to, A, want to kind of hide from God as if I'm kidding him, Like, Anthony, I can't see through that little block you put there. What's going on? But I'm I'm embarrassed. uh, Because I know that I have to admit to God I have sinned. I've broken your law. I've failed you. I have dishonored your name. I've hurt people around me. Gracious, what have I done? But the writer of Hebrews says, approach God boldly. Because his throne in my life is a throne of grace. Not of cheap grace. Not of lazy grace. Other places in scripture, the writers make clear, uh, you don't sin so grace can abound. Come on, if that's your understanding of grace, you're understanding the big picture. But one thing I know is that I can approach God with boldness because Christ is there as the great high priest interceding for me. Saying to God on my behalf, I've got him covered. So I can approach God and that throne of grace with humility, with reverence, with repentance, with all those things, but also with awe of what Jesus has done for me. That he paid such a price so that I could have this privilege. So we step boldly to the throne of grace. We pick up in chapter 5. Remember what I said earlier about the role of the high priest, even the ones chosen by human beings. The job of every high priest is reconciliation, approaching God on behalf of others and offering him gifts and sacrifices to repair the damage caused by our sins against God and each other. 
the high priest should have compassion for or reasonably bear with. Those who are ignorant of the faith and those who wander, your translation might say those who are wayward or misguided or easily deceived. Because he has wrestled with human weakness. And so the priest must offer sacrifices both for his sins and for those of the people. Now, if you keep reading, you're going to read the author reference two people who were very important to Jewish people, and these were people who were priests, and that is Aaron and Melchizedek. I'm not going to read the whole next section that addresses them because it can be kind of confusing, and that's not my focus this morning. We'll come back to Melchizedek a little bit later. The bottom line is this. The writer is once again saying, Jesus is a greater high priest than any of the high priests that you admire. So we've already done this with angels, with Moses, and with the Sabbath. And now the writer is saying, oh, also, this reverence you have for high priests, understand, even the best of them are nothing compared to Jesus. For one, Jesus never had to offer sacrifices for his own sins. Every other high priest did. So if you're looking for the greatest high priest, it has to be the one who has no sin to atone for on his own. So with this background in place, I want to talk about some of the implications for us. So the Bible says that we're all priests and kings in Revelations. There's other places it talks about the priesthood of all believers. And if you pick up my notes, there's some extra footnotes where you can read more about this idea that now in Christ, we all in some sense are playing the role of priests. So that means, if I look at this passage, well, I'm going to get to what that means in just a second. I think it means we have to take this seriously, first of all, but also we're going to model it after Jesus in some fashion, and we're going to model it after the high priest that we see in Scripture. It doesn't mean we're going to sacrifice animals, but there's something about what they were doing for other people and what they were offering to God that probably ought to be instructive in our lives if we are now priests in the kingdom of God. So pulling from this passage, I want to talk about four things that I think we are called to as believers if we are going to be priests who model ourselves after how we see the priesthood represented in Scripture and modeled ultimately in Jesus. So here's my first question. Do we approach God on behalf of others in prayer, even the most sinful people? Don't answer the following questions out loud. Who are you angry with right now? Take a minute. Who just ticks you off right now? Who are you disappointed with right now? They failed you in some fashion. You expected more of them. And what you got from them was less. Who are you hurt by right now? Who has left scars in your life and it's hard to let them go? Who is leaving scars in your life right now? Who are you bitter towards? Got somebody in mind? Okay, then here's my question. As a priest in the kingdom of God, do you approach God on their behalf in prayer? Is it part of the rhythm of our lives that when someone sins against us, 
that what we do as priests and priestesses in the kingdom of God, that what we do is offer prayers to God on their behalf? Or do we nurse that anger and that bitterness? Because that's not what priests do. What priests do is intercede to God on behalf of others. So this is my first question. Is that what characterizes our lives? Do we long for their salvation? Do we long for their sanctification? That is, that God works in their life and builds them into the image of Jesus. Do we long for their ultimate glorification? Do we long for the restoration of that person's relationship with Jesus and our relationship with them? Because that's what priests long for. I'm trying to make this as blunt as I can. For my sake, I'm not preaching at you, right? I'm preaching with you. I don't know how to say this. Um, right now, those people that came to mind, those people that you don't want to talk to because you're hurt, those people that you've distanced yourself because you're hurt, And now I'm talking about people in the kingdom of God right now. I'm talking about people in the kingdom of God. This was written about relationships between Christians, right? We can have another sermon about everybody else. This is an in-house issue. Are we acting as priests in how we approach these situations? Are we praying for them instead of settling in to our anger and our bitterness and frustration? Are we working for reconciliation? Are we praying for God's help to reconcile us and to reconcile them to God? Because that's what we're called to in this passage. Listen, let the word of God lay you bare right now, okay? Let the word of God take you by the neck and drag you around if you need it to. Is this what characterizes our lives? Second, from this passage, do we sacrifice to repair the damage caused by our sins and the sins of others? Genuine repentance is a sacrifice. Why? Because it will cost you something. To go to someone else and say, I have sinned against you. I have hurt you. I was wrong. I devalued you as someone who bears the image of God. Please forgive me. That's the sacrifice of your pride. That's probably the big one, sacrifice of your pride, which is big enough. It's probably sufficient. Because if Scripture lays us bare, it's going to call us to lay ourselves bare to those we have wronged. And to not go with defensiveness and excuses, but simply to go and say, I was wrong, and I need you to forgive me. So that sacrifice of repentance will cost you something, but so will forgiveness. Forgiveness is always costly. Forgiveness is never cheap. What did it cost Jesus to forgive us? Crucifixion. It will cost something. Because even when someone repents, we've experienced the emotional fallout of the sin that's happened to us. Sin has consequences, right? It leaves a mark. 
And when we extend forgiveness to someone, it's more than just words. One part of that is just positional. I will now live in such a way that I will not necessarily force you to reap everything that you've sowed in my life. And we could have a whole conversation about this in terms of practical consequences for sin. But I'm talking about we release people and we say, I, I will forgive you. And that, friends, is costly. Because then there's also the emotional side of it. If you've really been damaged by people, offering forgiveness in the midst of that interior pain, and that pain might not go away because it really left an impact on your life. Yet to say that I forgive you and I will try to posture my life in a way that shows forgiveness, that is costly. Now, once again, there's a whole conversation to have about um, not pretending as if things didn't happen in life. There's some wisdom that needs to be, be applied uh, to how we, how we live out this practicality. Come to Message Plus, we can talk about it, or you can talk with me later. I'm just talking about the cost of forgiveness, the cost of repentance. Number three, do we reasonably bear with Christians who sin in ignorance or from error? So the Bible seems to make a distinction of two different ways that Christians sin. One is, like this passage says, ignorance or error. And some of the commentaries I read said, this is even sometimes when you sin in what our society might call a crime of passion. In the moment, you're just, your guard was down and something sinful happened. Versus a willful, predetermined hardness of heart that kind of shakes your fist at God and says, I don't care what you say. I am determined to embrace this particular kind of sin. That rebellious predetermination kind of sin, if you read the New Testament, you're, you're pretty straightforward with that. Like There's times where the Bible says, you need to not fellowship with some of these people anymore. Like They're poison in your life and within your community, and you've got to get the poison out until they're willing, willing to deal with it. But what this passage is talking about is, is sins of weakness. And this could refer to, I just didn't know, and so I sinned in ignorance. It could be, I've absorbed some false teaching, and, so I, and, and it's led me to sinful behavior, so I sinned in error. It's all kind of under this umbrella of sins of weakness. One commentary I read phrased it this way. We should be moderate or tender in judgment toward another's errors. It's a state of feeling toward the ignorant and the erring, which is neither too severe nor too tolerant. The high priest must not be betrayed into irritation at sin and ignorance, but neither must he be weakly indulgent. I'll be honest, I get irritated at sin. Not my own, mind you. What what I think often escapes us is this ability to discern between these two kinds of sin. Because one kind requires, maybe demands, the, the rebellious kind, I get in your face, you know better. You're determined to live a life of rebellion. Boy, this love's going to be some tough love. 
But I, I think if we're not careful, we could tend to approach everything like that. And I, I think Hebrews here is making a clear distinction and saying, listen, there's also people in your midst who are just weak for whatever reason. I might add, that's all of us, right? We all have these weaknesses, but sometimes people are, are wrong and are sinful just because they're weak. This is a different kind of approach. This is, you don't get irritated at this. It's a, it's a moderate and a tender judgment. I think it involves approaching people and saying, okay, we need to talk about this, and I need to know what's going on in your heart. But before we jump to the conclusion that people are sinning just because they're rebellious jerks, they, they might be broken, weak people who need Jesus in their life, and they need people around them to help them address these issues. Don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about overlooking or soft-selling sin. I'm just saying, what does the Old Testament say about God's interaction with us? A bruised weed he won't break? In other words, nice little image from nature. If you see something that's kind of bent, like if I have a tree theoretically in my backyard that looks like it's about to break, I don't go finish it off. I prop it up. I know it's broken. The tree knows it's broken. It doesn't do either of us any good to finish the job. What's good is that we come alongside and we give strength and we give support and we give nurture. I think this is what it's talking about here in Hebrews. And once again, if you have questions about this, because I'm always worried I don't speak with clarity about what I'm trying to say. If you have questions about this, come to Message Plus. Let's talk about it more. But the, but the priests, the bottom line, they're moderate and they're tender in judgment toward those who are weak, that is, all of us. And then finally, do we empathize with or have sympathy for those who are weak because we recognize our weakness? Now, in the verse we read that talked about the priest's own weakness, it uses a word that literally says the priest has his infirmities lying all around him. This is the same word used later in Hebrews when the Bible talks about this great cloud of witnesses that surround us, here it says, in essence, there's this great cloud of infirmities that surround us. That recognition is what enables us to be gentle with others. Because we look at our own lives and we look all around and there is a great cloud of weaknesses in our lives. And so when we perform our priestly duties with others, we don't stand on a pedestal. We don't look down. I've often said the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all kneel there. We all look up. We don't look down at the person next to us. We look to Jesus together. Uh, Adam Clark noted this. This word signifies not merely to have compassion, but to act with moderation to bear with each in proportion to his ignorance, weakness, and untoward circumstances. All taken into consideration with the offenses he has committed. In a word, to pity, to feel for, and excuse as far as possible. And when the provocation is at its highest, to moderate one's passion toward the culprit and be ready to pardon. And when punishment must be administered, to do it in the gentlest manner. One of my challenges I've had this week, so I'd like to offer it to you so I'm not the only one uncomfortable. Am I ready to pardon 
those around me who hurt or offend or sin against me? Am I ready to argue first? Am I ready to condemn first? Or am I ready to pardon first? Am I always positioned looking for every opportunity to give everybody around me the benefit of the doubt? I think that's what he means here in his commentary by saying, excuse as far as possible. Not overlook sin, but what it, can I give people the benefit of the doubt? And then I very carefully, if I have to not give them the benefit of the doubt, that's a very careful process. So I make sure I'm not jumping to conclusions. And then, if they really are wrong, and there has to be some type of intervention and confrontation, am I committed to doing it in the gentlest manner possible? Or does that make me feel like now I'm justified just to unload on the idiocy of this sinner next to me? Okay, but I'm surrounded by a great cloud of my own infirmities. I don't really have permission to do that. What I'm called to do as a priest is to show the love of God, to reflect what we've read here in Hebrews about how high priests deal with other people. I'm going to close with a comment from Spurgeon, one of his sermons on this. I've found that I'm, when I do research in Hebrews, I'm reading a lot from Spurgeon, and he just really has good things to say. He says, Think much of the Son of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, who for our salvation loved and lived and served and suffered. He that made man was made man. As a suppliant with cries and tears, he pleaded with God, even he before whom the hosts of heaven bow adoringly. He has still the tenderness to which he was trained by his suffering, and he bids you now come to him. You that love him, approach him now, and read the love which is engraved on his heart. You who have not hitherto known him, come boldly to him, and trust him who has come near to you. The man is very near akin to us. Behold how he loves us. He bends to us with eternal salvation in his hands. Believe in him and live. God grant it. He bends to us with eternal salvation. Maybe this is my closing image. Do we bend toward others as we point to and offer the reconciliation that Jesus has to offer? Or do we bend away from others and put up things between us and them versus to whatever degree we can, getting rid of all barriers and bending toward others in the posture of Christ and in the posture of a priest. Lord, I, I want your scripture to lay us bare this morning as it needs to. I'm not asking for unjustified guilt. But Lord, if there's something in our lives that your word needs to cut into, dear God, I pray that that work is fervent and effective. That we can't escape it. That we embrace it, recognizing that this is the process which leads us to the rest in you, and that is it points us toward the great high priest 
who forgives us, who cleans us, who sets us free, who offers us new life. And it's in that new life that we find the rest that Christ offers. So, Lord, I I don't pray that we're laid bare um, to make us wallow in shame. I pray that we are laid bare so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And Lord, as we experience your work in us as the great high priest who has brought reconciliation between us and God, I pray that you empower in us that priestly role that we have in your kingdom, that we can imitate you, that we can model in our own weakened state, that we can model what you showed us, and that as your people experience us in their lives, they experience the throne of grace through the people of grace. I pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.